0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a terrific chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. Okay, Rav, it's time for you to invite everyone to the chat room and tell us all what makes your chat room just so special.
2: Well, I'm in there. What else is there to say? It is the ProvocativeEnlightenment.com chat room. Um, We have a great group of people there. Um, You just have to come join us. Come see what the excitement is about. So do come in, say hello, and meet some wonderful people. I'll see you in there.
1: All right. In our Spotlight of the Week segment, this week we turn our attention to the speed with which technology develops and that's often much faster than the thought that goes into developing the same technology to deploying the same technology you know we have seen moral principles trampled in the past as science has outpaced our society our value systems and our the way we adjust and and think about how we use technology we still face uncertainties with a vast array of technologies ranging from human cloning to the many surveillance and or counterintelligence technologies that can be used, oh say, to remotely take control of your automobile or in certain circumstances, perhaps even your brain. Nothing, however, seems as daunting as the new threat posed by many scientists today. What is that new threat? Well it's AI or artificial intelligence. Steve Omohundro. Computer scientist and author of a new paper published in the Journal of Experimental and Theoretical Artificial Intelligence begins with this warning quote, Military and economic pressures are driving the rapid development of autonomous systems. We show that these systems are likely to behave in antisocial and harmful ways unless they are very carefully designed. Designers will be motivated to create systems that act approximately rationally. And rational systems exhibit universal drives towards self-protection, resource acquisition, replication, and efficiency. The current computing infrastructure would be vulnerable to unconstrained systems with these drives. Close quote. Sound a little like science fiction? You know, the new movie Transcendence, which my wife and I uh, saw this last weekend, is described as a story of Dr. Will Caster, uh, the foremost researcher in the field of artificial intelligence, working to create a sentient machine that combines the collective intelligence of everything ever known with a full range of human emotions. His highly controversial experiments have made him famous in the movie, but they have also made him the prime target of anti-technology extremists who will do whatever it takes to stop him. However, in their attempt to destroy him in the movie, they inadvertently become the catalyst for him to succeed, to be a participant in his own transcendence emerging into the computer. Their worst fears, his wife and fellow researcher, are realized as Will's thirst for knowledge evolves into a seemingly omnipresent, omnipotent quest for power. To what end is unknown? The New York Times had this to say about the movie, quote, the dystopian future envisioned by last year's critical darling, Her, reappears in transcendence, albeit with a lot more testosterone. You could even call this new thriller in which godlike artificial intelligence, played by Johnny Depp, starts building an army of cyborg zombies, you could call it HIM. Is there a HIM around the corner? In Omahundra's words, quote, military and economic pressures for rapid decision-making are driving the development of a wide variety of autonomous systems. The military wants systems which are more powerful than an adversary's and wants to deploy them before the adversary does. This can lead to arms races in which systems are developed on a more rapid time schedule than might otherwise be desired. Close Now you know, there is a saying in investigative circles that television has made famous. Follow the money. If there is anything to the warnings of Omahundro, then we should find that big money is moving into areas of concentrated AI research, perhaps even pursuing, oh, what, a new Terminator? A real live, but, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger form? Well, when you look, that's exactly what you find. Unfortunately... More and more money is going into AI research of the likes and the ilk such as the just we were just warned of by Omahundro. In fact, even Google recently purchased Boston Dynamics Builders of the Autonomous Military Robots. Now what do you think? Did they do that to improve their search engine performance? All right, Rav, your thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, I don't think they're trying to improve the uh, search engine. Not at all. You know, the fact is it is all scary. Um, I'm working on two of your upcoming books right now. And, you know, when when I have all of that in context, then you have to say, you know, I'm a proud wearer of my tinfoil hat. (laughs) That is the only way we can stop anything. But quite frankly, I don't think we can. You know i think it has gone too far when you see some of these conspiracy the things that were considered conspiracy theories and then you find out the truth so much later you know i'm looking at the mind programming stuff right now and that was back in the 40s and the 50s and what they can do Jules Romains, you know cook your parents in a stew well that's mild compared to some of the things uh i'm encountering right now and it just keeps on progressing so no they have the power to do this they're going to do even more and more we are just the sheeples and you know the best programming tool they have out there is to say that it's all conspiracy funny funny ha ha tinfoil hat wearing stupid people
1: yeah for those of you out there that don't know jules romaine a member of the cia testified before congress about what they had learned that they could do in, indeed in manipulating or what we think of today in mind control. And he did say that um, they had learned that they could, given sufficient time, uh, take a person and teach them, uh, convince them to cook their parents uh, in a stew. Uh, So that's what that uh, reference was. And, you know, the interesting thing is this Princeton study that I posted this last week uh, that shows... We've really reached a tipping point in our society where, you know, we have more of an oligarchy than a democracy. It is the it is money now that runs our country. You combine all of that with some of the other interests, and it can be scary. But I'll tell you what, who knows? Maybe we'll end up needing to escape back in time in order to reverse some of what's going on today. Now, that's a rather timely idea. Since our show today is all about time travel, but first our letters. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making the show successful. Last week our show featured Dr. Karen Can, and we discussed holistic health care. Jamie wrote, I so loved your point about the power of what the doctor tells the patient, and when Dr. Can told us that she was integrating your research findings into the curriculum where she teaches medicine, I literally yelled at my computer, Great for you. Well, I like that, Jamie. Thanks for sharing. Tom wrote, I wish Karen can live near me. She would be my doctor for sure. Wilbur wrote, Love your shows, love your guests, and love how you and the missus get on. It's great fun listening to the two of you. There are so many teachers talking about relationships who don't have one. Have you ever thought about teaching how to build a good relationship? Uh, What do you think of that, Princess?
2: You know, I've been playing with that idea in my head. If I had time... You know, actually, if I could automatically write from my head as I'm falling asleep at night, yeah, I'd have a book already done.
1: We just need a time machine. That's all. We'll get to time. We'll get to time. Okay. (laughs) Kathy wrote, I enjoy hanging with people in the self-help movement, but I have learned to discern and realize they are still human. That's from running across some people, some famous ones, who talked all the time about love, etc., and then finding out how self-involved they were, how diva-like and kind of mean. I can say happily, Eldon and Ravinder are the real deal. That's very nice. Thank you, Kathy. You like that, don't you, Rap? I do. Carolee wrote, I love, love, love Inner Talk. I have received so much benefit from listening to the CDs. I listened to Ultra Success every single day for a few years while I was going to school and was fortunate enough to land a job that pays extremely well. I think I am unconsciously drawn to success now. Well, good for you, Dr. Carolee. Dominique wrote, I bought your program, Positive Relationships and Freedom from Stress. They truly help me in relationships as currently I am having a tough time with my loved ones. This truly gave me a chance to look at things in a more positive way, and therefore it is a great product. You know, I didn't think of that. You know, we do have a relationship program. That's not us teaching relationships, but it's helpful, isn't it?
2: It most certainly is, you know. Okay. The fact is things haven't always been hunky-dory between us And i used the um, enhancing romance and intimacy and love myself You know, way back in those dark days So yeah, no, it's excellent Okay, you're going to have to tell
1: me about the dark days later, all right (laughs) (laughs) Antonio wrote, my life has been impacted by your book Mind Programming, the information is all mind capturing It keeps me hungry for more Stephanie wrote, love your work. You are a life changer. Well, thank you, Stephanie. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to apply by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, and I'm anxious to get to this show, time travel. Our guest this week is on record stating that time travel will happen this century. Let me say that again. Time travel will happen this century. And he's not a science fiction writer. No, Professor Ronald L. Mallett received his BS, MS, and PhD in physics from Pennsylvania State University. He is a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Connecticut. He is also a member of both the American Physical Society and the National Society of Black Physicists. Professor Mallett has published numerous papers on black holes and cosmology in professional journals. His breakthrough research on time travel has been featured extensively in the media around the world, including print media such as New Scientist, The Village Voice, The Boston Globe, Rolling Stone Magazine, and The Wall Street Journal. And broadcast media such as NPR's This American Life, The History Channel, Science Channel, ABC's Good Morning America and NBC's Today Show. Professor Mallet's recently published memoir Time Travel, a scientist's personal mission to make time travel a reality, has been translated into several languages. And award-winning filmmaker Spike Lee has written a feature film script based on the memoir. The oldest of four children, Professor Mallett's life changed forever when his beloved father died of a heart attack. The 10-year-old was overwhelmed with grief until he read a copy of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. He was determined to make Wells' fantasy a reality by going back in time to see his father. We will have him share this story directly with us, so on that, let's get the man himself in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Ronald Mallett. Hi. Good to have you. I've been really looking forward to this, uh, opportunity, sir. Oh, thank we have you. three, we have three objectives here that we'd like to flesh out. Sure. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So let's begin with you. Please tell us a little bit about your background, Professor Mallet, and most particularly the story of what motivated you to do the research and time travel that you have done.
3: Well, uh, as you already alluded to, I mean, for me, everything began with my father. Uh, I was the oldest of four children, I grew up in the Bronx, and my father was a television repairman in the Bronx. Uh, he was very, very good at his job, by the way. He had, uh, In fact, uh, those people who were old enough might remember actors like uh, Walter Matthau. My father was asked to fix people's television sets like that. I, mean, I have an autographed copy of... Uh, photograph and brought her math out, thanking my father for his great job. So he was really superb, this job. And for me, he was uh, a giant. I mean, he just seemed like he was perfect at everything. And even though he worked very hard, he worked two jobs, uh, he had time for the family. And uh, for me, uh, literally, the sun rose and set on him. And he looked like he was strong, healthy, but uh, we didn't know that he had a weak heart. And he died suddenly of a massive heart attack when he was only 33 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was 10. And uh, to say that it devastated my world would be an understatement. I mean, it, it just turned it inside out. And uh, I really became went from being a happy child to actually being a rather depressed child. And the family plunged into poverty as well. And I don't know how my poor mother survived with poor children to take care of the oldest only being 10. Uh, but she did thing is, is that I loved reading. I mean, that was one of the, uh, the intellectual gifts he left me with. And about a year after he died, when I was 11, I came across uh, the book that, that changed my life. It was uh, uh, actually it was a classic illustrated version of The uh, Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And uh, right at the beginning of it, it uh, had the lines that, that uh, even to the day I remember it said, uh, uh, scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space, and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read that, I mean, it was like a bolt from the blue. I said, this is it. This is the thing that I need to do. Uh, I need to build a time machine and go back and see him again and um, maybe save his life. And I just I became obsessed with that. Uh, the thing is, is that I should mention that I kept it a, a secret. Because even at eleven, I was astute enough to realize people were already worried about me, and it might not be a good idea to tell them that I wanted to build a time machine. So I didn't tell anyone about my my secret dream. And uh, it, but it, for me, it, it was the life preserver. It actually is the thing that I think really believed, you know, kept me sane and kept me from uh, getting into trouble. Uh, then the next book that changed my life was about a year after that. I said we were poor, so the only way I could getting books was from the Salvation Army. You could get paperbacks for about five cents. And one day when I was there, I saw a copy of a book that had a picture of Einstein on it. And even I knew that, ever, everyone knew that Einstein was this great genius. I didn't know what he did, but I knew that he was this great genius. And next to Einstein was an hourglass. So I knew just from the cover of the book that the, that the book was saying that Einstein had something to do with time. So, you know, I immediately, you know, gave him that five cents and uh, and looked through it. And I couldn't understand most of what it was saying, but I did grasp that it said that unlike uh, classical physics of, of Newton and Einstein's work, time could be altered. There were ways of altering time. So right from that, I knew that the thing I had to do was to understand uh, Einstein's work. Incidentally, the book was called The Universe of Dr. Einstein by Lincoln Barnett. And uh, as I said, it, it was actually the second book that changed my life. The thing is is that it was a long road after that. It was like I just immediately uh, went from A to, to Z. I mean, uh, I couldn't go to college directly because, as I said, we were poor. So I followed in my father's footsteps. I went to the service and uh, during the Vietnam War era. And I used the GI Bill to. Uh, after I got out to go to Penn State. And uh, that's where I got my master's, bachelor's. PhD in physics, and along the way, I learned a way of covering my tracks as far as, because I still didn't tell people that I was interested in building a time machine, because I thought that might be a career record, so uh, I found something that uh, I could study that would allow me to study about time, but was considered to be uh, legitimate, but legitimate, and that was black holes, and they were considered to be sort of... uh, uh, legitimate. they were crazy, but they were considered to be legitimate crazy and It yeah. turns out that black holes can affect time, so by studying black holes that 's what I put my career on. I could study about how time could be affected so that was yeah. uh, that was it that was know, the beginning. I, I,
1: I, I want to get into your time machines and everything else but i I understand from reading your book, and by the way i I love your book, my entire family 's read your book. You, you. you tried to build your first uh, time machine way back when you were like 10 or 11 based on that H.G. Wells drawing oh, yeah. in your basement. Is that right?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, my mother kept my, uh, you know, the electronic parts that my father had, and there was a picture on the Classics Illustrated about uh, what you know, they thought a time machine would look like. And I got you know, spare parts, uh, bicycle tires you know, a whole bunch of things. It was radio parts, uh, television parts, you know, anything that I thought looked like it might be, a, you know, something like a reasonable facsimile. It wasn't really, but, you know, in my mind, I thought it was. And, of course, when I turned the whole thing on, it didn't even turn on. But uh, but I remembered that in the, uh, the book, it had said that scientific people know very well. So, even though I was, you know, a little bit disappointed, I wasn't really too discouraged because I realized that what it was saying was that I was going to have to learn science. And so, um, you know, that, so, so that was my first attempt, but as I said, I realized that I was going to have to, you know, go beyond uh, just simply trying to put together uh, bits and pieces.
1: Such wonderful dedication, the kind every father dreams about. Not, not leaving you young like that, but it's very admirable. Listen, Professor Mallett, I have two sons who, like myself, love your book, and they both have questions for you. And so I'm sure. going to indulge them, if you don't mind. My oldest, Roy Kenneth, is at the University of Washington studying physics, and my youngest, William James, is at Gonzaga Prep, where he just prepared a paper on the advantage of computer gaming. Now, he knows that you like computer gaming, so here is William <laughs> That's
3: Williams. a little known fact, as a matter of fact. <laughs> okay. but I am I'm a computer gamer. <laughs> so <laughs> here's his...
1: Here's his two-part question, sir. Do you play computer games, and if so, which ones? And do you think computer games are advantageous in any way? Well,
3: I do. The type that I like actually are almost two different extremes. Uh, one are the uh, problem solving ones, like mysteries, where you're a detective and right. uh, you have to solve a case, uh, that type of thing. I mean, I actually like detectives. Shows, by the way, too, true life detective shows, things like that. But mm-hmm. you're actually having to solve, you know, some crime mystery. And then the other extreme are what people sometimes call, uh, uh, I guess, sword and sandal, or, or you know, hack and slash. In other words, these are the type of uh, ones in which uh, you're fighting demons, and uh, you know, you're trying to save the world. Right. Uh, which is actually an underlying theme in my life, by the way. I mean, that, that's something.
1: See, he just did this paper, and his English teacher uh, essentially told him that he could not support any quality to the, you know, the creation of. Uh computer games there was was deeming value to them and of course you know dad gave him some research on how they're used for everything from cognitive improvement to treating schizophrenia you know there are some downsides to it but he just had to have your bullet you know punctuate his paper so (laughs) you will get quoted
3: on that theme that you just mentioned I mean the thing is is I do think very much so that they have a cognitive value particularly as I said the uh, ones like the detective ones where you're trying to solve par- uh, puzzles. It really does uh, uh, require that you have to think. And anytime that you have to think-
1: say he he will be thrilled with your answer and he will punctuate his his conclusion with a quote from Professor Mallet. Listen we've got a break coming up so right after the break I want to ask you my son Roy's question and that's just simply this. He's, had, you know, he struggles with some of the math. He loves the physics, struggles with the math, and knows that you hated math. So his question is <laughs> Did you ever learn to love it? Especially applied math. And if so, how'd you go about it? We'll be right back. We're speaking with Professor Ronald Mallett about his life and book, Time Traveler. You can learn more about Professor Mallett by visiting the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after these words from some of our friends.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Confusion. Deception. Manipulation. Feeling a bit controlled. Lost. Learn how you can take back control of your life through proven techniques in Eldon Taylor's revised edition of Choices and Illusions. This New York Times bestseller is a guidebook to your journey to self-actualization filled with practical, real-life solutions backed by scientific studies and guaranteed to awaken your inner genie. Get your copy today from all bookstores.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do
0: there never seems
1: to be enough time. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Professor Ronald Mallett about his life and book, Time Traveler. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. their life songs, if you will. This often provides some interesting insight into our guests. Now, we just played some of Time in the Bottle by Jim Croce. Why is this song important to you, Professor Mallett? And how does it tell us about who you are?
3: Well, I mean, if you listen to the words of the song, uh, it says a lot of things. Uh, among them is there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. And I found that that's been so in my life. And, uh, and that's the thing. I mean, I've, I've actually been, you know, very satisfied with how things have been evolving in my life. But I find that uh, along with that, I have not enough time to enjoy all of them as fully as I would like to. Uh, and that's important to me. I mean, not only as far as my scientific work, but uh, but my personal life. I have a very good marriage, and uh, and I enjoy the company of my wife, who's uh, very intellectually oriented as well. She's a, uh, English as a second language uh, teacher at high school. And uh, and the thing is, is that I wish I would have I had more time to enjoy life. And but when I contrast it with my father, who only was only thirty three years old. Um, I realize
1: just how precious it is. Yeah. Amen to that, sir. I share those sentiments 100%. I, too, have a great relationship, and I enjoy those intellectual conversations with my wife. And uh, and there is never enough time. Back to the question before the break. You love math today?
3: <laughs> yes, Uh And in a sense, it was partially an acquired taste. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned in the book, which I thought was important for people to know, was the fact that it wasn't as though all
1: sun breeze through the the algebra and the calc and the trig, you know, uh, but then he hit the applied uh, where you're basically proving some of these formulas and he said, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not sure I like this anymore, but that was his question. You know, your wonderful book opens with a couple of paragraphs that I'd like our audience to hear. It Basically, here we go. Quote, flight by machines heavier than air is impractical, if not utterly impossible, stated one of the great scientists of the 19th century, John Hopkins professor of astronomy, Simon Newcomb, who spent much of his career producing improved orbital tables for the moon and planets. Newcomb was convinced that a new metal or unknown force of nature would have to be discovered before man could consider taking to the skies. Even should a power machine be invented that could lift a man off the ground, he predicted it would fall a dead mass to the ground and kill anyone aboard. Simon Newcomb's comments about the impossibility of man flight were published in 1902. A year later, Orville and Wilbur Wright proved the expert wrong. All right, question... Time travel, is it really feasible, Professor?
3: Oh, yeah. And the reason why I utilized that uh, that description of Newcomb, who was very well known in his time, was the fact that, that it shows that if there's scientific principles behind it, then it can be done. And uh, one of the things that people don't realize is that, you know, they think of uh, the Wright brothers as just being, you know, tinkering mechanics. They don't realize that the Wright brothers actually looked up and understood a lot of the engineering and aerodynamics that was known at the time. There were actually books on aerodynamics that described, uh, you know, how what the shape of wings and things like that. The other thing that aren't, isn't shown much in documentaries, and I've only seen it in one, is the fact that uh, they didn't just go out to Kitty Hawk and immediately take off. What they did was they built a small wind tunnel, and they looked at different uh, configurations of... Of, of wings. I mean, this was all the way—the best way in which scientific and engineering studies are done. And this is what they did before they actually did that. But it shows that that their knowledge plus the fact their persistence led to the fact that they were able to eventually take to the skies. With time travel, once again, it's important to realize that there's a scientific basis to it, and that scientific basis actually comes from Einstein. And the reason why I mention that, that that's an important feature, is the fact that this notion of time travel didn't just start with H.G. Wells. I mean, uh, one of the main writers, one of my favorite writers, but also Mark Twain, who wrote um, a book called Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is interesting because um, of the fact that it talks about Connecticut, which is where I live. (laughs) The thing is, is that in that, the person goes back in time by, you know, being hit on the head. Just some accidental thing happened. And uh, what made Wells' work different was the fact that it was a mechanism, it was something that you could actually design and try to control, and it was based on some sort of scientific principle. Wells didn't go into what those principles were, but he did mention that there were scientific principles behind it. And the key to the real science of time travel is Einstein's theories of relativity. And it's important to realize that these theories are based on facts, and they actually have led to consequences that we see in reality. And so the serious work that's done on time travel, not just mine, but other scientists as well, and I should mention there are other scientists who are involved in this as well, all of the serious work is based on Einstein's theories, and people should use that as a litmus test as to whether or not they should believe i okay. development.
1: actually run an experiment like that, I mean, 20 years ago or so, it seems oh, to exactly. me, where they flew right, a clock from New York to London? Well,
3: the thing is, is that the experiment that was done, and that's exactly, it was done in
1: You have a very unique contribution to all of this. I mean, Einstein may be the basis, but you have a very unique contribution. I want to get into that and the specificity of it all. But before we do, there had to be some... I mean, you said you were you were secret, uh, I suppose, about your research, but there had to be some real trepidation involved with marching forward your ideas of of time travel to your colleagues, to other researchers. Uh, w- w- at what point did you decide? Well, it, I'm no longer just talking about black holes. I'm going to come clean and tell everybody what I'm doing. And and how was that received?
3: Well, the thing is, is that number one. You have to remember that um, science, even though some of the things that, that uh, physicists seem to come up with sound, you know, um, really crazy. Science uh, phys- physicists, including myself, are a rather conservative bunch. I mean, the thing is, is that you have to demonstrate very carefully what it is that you're doing. What people don't realize uh, when they when a scientist says that they have an idea, it's not the same as a person means colloquially, which is just simply, oh, you know, I've got this idea. When a, when a physicist says that, what they mean is that they have a mathematical model that shows how the world or a particular portion of the world works. And the science this mathematical model is based on standard, accepted scientific principles. Moreover, whenever they publish this, it just doesn't go out. It's, it goes to peer review, which means that it's examined by anonymous referees, and that these, the paper, if it's found to be Scientifically lacking, either mathematically or its a physical principles, it can and they do frequently get rejected. So the thing is, is that when you put work out there, it's it's really reviewed very very carefully. So number one, you want to make sure that you got everything together whenever you're publishing your ideas. Uh, as I said, because of the peer-reviewed journals, they just won't appear in there. Number two, uh, there's this thing of a career track that you have. I mean, I want to be a university professor, and that involves several different things. One is the promotion from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor. The other aspect is what's known as tenure. And anyone who hears the word tenure, it actually can cause uh, a lot of concern for someone who doesn't have it yet. Because in the university, that means that you're just on a year-to-year basis, and you can actually be let go without cause. But when you have tenure after a certain period of time then you actually have security and the thing is is that so that means you want to be really professionally conservative you want to publish work uh you want that work to be accepted by your colleagues and you want to get through that so number one i wanted to get through the career path okay so right. i wanted to become a tenured full professor okay right. uh, so I said i tell people somewhat facetiously, but becoming a tenure full professor at the university is somewhat roughly equivalent to becoming like a made man in the mafia, you know. <laughs> Right. And I I looked down and I I had this bulging folder of twenty six transparency, <laughs> right? I'm gonna be talking right after him, you know, right? And then he said, uh, you know, then I Now the challenge becomes uh, the technological aspect of it, and the thing is, is
1: Okay, Professor, I enjoyed an exchange yesterday with a good friend of mine, a neurosurgeon in Hilo, Hawaii, Dr. John L. Turner. His mother, Alberta Banda Turner, was the first African-American to graduate with a doctoral degree in psychology from Ohio State. This was back in 1935. And we chatted some, uh, you know, and, and I've known Jack for some time, and we've talked about racial issues and how they you know, have impacted people in their careers. You you have managed, you know, to be who you are. The question is, did racial issues ever enter into holding back your career, your tenor, your investigations, your research, sir?
3: And not in a direct way, but in, in subtle way. I should say that I was fortunate at Penn State. I had a faculty that was very supportive, And my uh, thesis advisor, uh, I I incidentally at Penn State, I was the first uh, African-American Ph.D. uh, to get a Ph.D. in physics. there. But the thing is, is that uh, my uh, thesis advisor was was a white male, but he was colorblind. Uh, He had a large group of, uh, I was the only African-American student he had, but he he was also gender blind. I mean, he had uh, one of the largest number of of female students that were working with him as well as other males. So I professor, would...
1: I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to hold that. We'll pick up the sure. balance of the colorblind and the gender blind when we come back. I don't want the computer to kick us out. Sure. Again, if you would like to know more about Professor Mallett and his work, check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com or just Google this man. He's everywhere. It, it, be sure to catch his uh, entertaining pieces, informative pieces that are on YouTube. All right, we have a film featuring our guest for you today during our break so if you're not in our chat room make sure you get there provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat we'll be right back after this station break if you're new to this show you may enjoy our archives you can find more than five years of archives on our site provocativeenlightenment.com during that time we have interviewed hollywood greats politicians psychics, cia personnel Heart scientists, religious leaders, skeptics, mathematicians, philosophers, social psychologists, best-selling authors, channels, mediums, and more. We have charted the waters of health and wellness, parapsychology, psychic phenomena, UFOs, NDEs, physics, psychology, criminology, neuromarketing, brainwashing, and still more. If any of that sounds like your kind of radio, check out our archives again at provocativeenlightenment.com. Be sure to subscribe to our free newsletter while you're there.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elda Taylor.
1: If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Professor Ronald Mallett about his life and book, Time Traveler. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies, and from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And... I love your comments and feedback and Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now we just played some of your second musical choice, Professor Mallet. Time After Time by Cindy Lauper. What's the story about this one?
3: Well, you know, at the beginning of the song it says, you know, the person's lying in their bed and, you know, thinking about it. There, I have to say there is not one single day that I don't think about my father um, and it's everything that I am and this is you know the, my existence as a theoretical physicist everything that I am has its roots in him and in, in that event of his death and uh, I go back in my mind frequently to uh, to that and to him and the thing is is that so that the
1: song just made me think of that. I think mean, that that particular line. Cool. Again, he has got to be so proud of you when he hears you speak. He gets goosebumps, even in the spiritual side of things. Oh, thank you. Uh, you were telling us that your supervisor at uh, was uh, what we, I guess, we'll say colorblind and genderblind. I think that's yeah, your yeah. Word.
3: Gordon, please pick it up. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that he. Uh, I, but still once again I was cautious not to tell him <laughs> what it was that I was ultimately interested in. <laughs> but he was doing research and looking at this concept of, of time reversal in special relativity. and um, So what I wanted to do was to uh, build on his work uh, using Einstein's general theory of relativity, which I'll tell you about in, in a little while. But the thing is is that so um, and he was willing to, to have me as a student, and uh, it, was, it went it, very, very well. I mean, it was challenging. It was extremely challenging. But I actually finished my Ph.D. in record time. It took me uh, just two and a half years, which was considered pretty much of a record uh, for finishing a Ph.D. Wow. And, uh, it was, and it was published. And that was the other thing that was important to me, that, that my thesis wasn't just something that was accepted by the committee there at Penn State, but it actually was published in a peer-reviewed journal, which was something that I was very, very proud of. So, um, But as far as uh, other aspects, you have to remember that the the, the whole culture, yes, I did feel prejudice in the background, Uh, not just simply, I mean, it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't in the physics department there at the university, but I felt it in the larger areas. I mean, this went way back to when I was in the service. I mean, I was stationed in Mississippi. Uh, This was during the civil rights era back in uh, the 60s. And I can still remember whenever I was um, stationed, uh, that I went out into the town, and at this time there were still these signs that uh, that said white only, you know, uh, colored here. That's what they called uh, African Americans at the time, colored. And I remembered that I was so upset because here I was, you know, potentially being asked to defend my country and die for my country, but I couldn't even really live equally in my country. And so I, I actually didn't have friends. I mean, I, after that first experience, I spent the rest of the year that I was training to become a computer technician. I spent it uh, essentially on the base and in the library. I, I didn't have really a, a personal life at all because I just couldn't deal with that. And uh, it was it was extremely difficult. So it's it caused a disgusting me to, to part of our into history, myself. period. And, and, uh, and then it, it happened, you know, all the way through as far as... Uh, you know, personal relationships were concerned. Uh, that uh, I just knew that just simply because of the color of my skin that, uh, you know, that I wasn't considered equal. And in fact, in the physics community, there was this uh, uh, physicist actually well-known, and I'm not saying anything out of school, uh, in fact, there was a book uh, that was uh, published about him, his name was Shockley, William Shockley, mm-hmm. and he was actually a co-inventor of the transistor. And the book, in fact, is called uh, Broken Broken Genius, which I thought was a great title for the book. But but I knew about him uh, when I was growing up.
1: You had to get to a point where you could just, you know, give him the big finger and a great sense of satisfaction,
3: (laughs) too. Very well put.
1: takes a lot of courage you know, sometimes to uh, pursue our paths, and you're obviously uh, an example of that to uh, everyone, all colors. Thanks. Let's do get into the specificity, sir, of uh, of what your work is. And, and let, let's start with the general theory of relativity and how you interpreted well, not how you interpret it, but what you saw in the general theory that gave rise to your unique contribution.
3: Okay, yeah, well, Einstein's general theory of relativity is a very different animal from his special theory. For one thing, it took to kill him 10 years after he developed the special theory in order to develop the, spe- the general theory. And the reason why was, uh, I was thinking once again, your son Einstein actually had to learn something that was beyond the calculus in order to do it. It was called uh, the the absolute differential calculus, which we call now tensor calculus. And that actually took him uh, 10 years to learn that. He actually had a colleague of his who was a professor of mathematics who uh, helped him to understand the mathematics that he needed for the theory. And the reason why he developed the theory was because of the fact that uh, there was a phenomena which all of us are familiar with in our everyday life, every day, that was actually didn't wasn't consistent with his special theory. And that phenomenon is called gravity, the force that holds us down uh, on the ground and holds keeps us uh, the Earth in orbit around the Sun. And right. it turns out that according to Newton, the gravitational force can actually travel faster than the speed of light. And Einstein felt that this could not be. This was inconsistent. A special theory of relativity, and ultimately he realized he was going to have to develop a whole new theory of gravity in order to to get around that, and that's what he did. I mean, he developed a, he developed a way of looking at gravity, which is actually uh, unique. He didn't see gravity as being a force; he saw gravity as being a property of space. It, it's a simple way of, of looking at that. Uh, what it, imagine that right now in front of you you had a sort of a rubber sheet let's say something like a small trampoline you know, right. right now and imagine that what you do is you put a bowling ball uh, on that uh, rubber sheet What's going to do it's going to bend the rubber sheet right and suppose you take a marble and you put the marble on the rubber sheet okay the marble is going to roll down and hit the bowling ball right. now imagine that you have the rubber sheet there but you make it transparent so you can't see it anymore. Transparent, it's there, but but you can't see it, and so all you can see is the bowling ball and the marble. So you release the marble, and it goes towards the bowling ball. You you might say, "Ha ha!" The uh, what's happening is is that the bowling ball is somehow has this mysterious force that's pulling on the marble, but that's not what's really happening because you know that the bowling ball is curving this transparent rubber sheet. And so the marble is just going along that. But since you can't see that, you think it's something that's due to the bowling ball itself. What Einstein said is that's what's happening with gravity. The sun is actually like the bowling ball. The sun is curving the empty space around it. The empty space is like that transparent rubber sheet. And so the earth is like the marble. The earth is moving on that fact. If the earth didn't have that little sideways motion that it had, it would actually just roll into the sun just the way that marble did. Fortunately for us, when the solar system was created, we had a little bit of a sideways motion, so we're orbiting. In fact, you can do that with the marble, by the way. If you actually do this experiment, you take a bowling ball, put it on the rubber sheet, and you give a marble a little bit of a sideways motion, you can get the marble to actually orbit the, uh, the bowling ball. And that's what the Earth is doing. So so what Einstein said is, is that what we call the gravitational force is not really a force at all. It's actually the curving of the empty space around an object like the sun, for example, and that the Earth is just moving along that curvature like a a skater on a roller derby rig. And that's that's it. But as I said, if you try to describe this mathematically, it's very complex, but it's it's just simply that simple. That's Einstein's general theory of relativity is that gravity is actually the curvature of space by massive objects. That's, That's it and uh, now the fact that the curved space it actually also does something to time the curving of space affects time as well and that is a prediction from einstein's theory that says that that gravity affects time and what einstein means by that is the fact that if according to him the stronger gravity is the more time will slow down for example here at the surface of the earth where gravity Have a clock here at the surface of the earth, it will be running at a certain rate. But if you go at a higher altitude,
1: How does I mean? How, how does that fit with time is space? I mean, are we saying that um, because the bowling ball and in in your your analogy, because the bowling ball has caused the curvature that, or because the satellites are higher, they're in space and they have less gravity, they're the marble further away from the you yeah. Know, that, that's
3: essentially it. I mean, the thing is, is that that the the curvature of sun, for example, where gravity is stronger, okay, would actually be running, uh, where where curvature is greater, the clocks would be running slower than where the earth is. Where the earth is, the curvature is much less than where the sun is, and so those clocks would be actually running faster because the curvature is less, so that you have, that's exactly right.
1: Okay, so now, I I, I mean... (laughs) I'm I'm not even sure if I have the moxie to ask this question, but uh, you know, because you are who you are, that would lead you to think. Then, when you start looking at black holes, as I understand them, that for all intent and purposes, that curvature is, and that and the change, if you will, in what you this this thing we call gravity. That's where you go with what you do in, in your time machine research. Well, right that's, or wrong?
3: No, right. I mean, the thing is is that what, what, that's one of the reasons why I studied black holes was because black holes are part of Einstein's theory of gravity. Black holes curve space so much. Okay, and I should mention that what a black hole is is just simply a star that has used up its internal furnace, okay, and right. so it starts to collapse. And as the star starts to collapse, the space around it starts getting more and more curved. In other words, gravity starts getting greater and greater and greater as the, as the star collapses. Eventually, what happens is that the space gets so curved, that is to say the gravity gets so strong, that the light that tries to get away from the star actually gets pulled back to the star. Okay, The light cannot get away from the star. So if you're standing outside the star, and if all the light gets back, pulled back to the star, what do you see? Nothing. You see a black hole. That's all a black hole. which is simply a star that has collapsed to a point where the light that tries to get out can't get out anymore. And that's because the curvature is now so great. So that's all a black hole is, though. But what it does, the way that it's affecting time, is the fact that because that curvature is so great, time is slowing down so much that time is nearly coming to a halt near a black hole. So that means that if you're far away from the black hole and someone is going towards the black hole, and if you were watching them, you would actually see their clock, and that means their heart rate, you would actually see them slow down more and more and more as they got closer to the black hole to a point where it would almost be coming to a stop, would still be there. This means that that person would be aging so much less than everyone else that if they got away from the black hole before they, they entered into the black hole, they could actually being near the black hole for only for them would seem like a few hours. But when they came back, hundreds of years could have passed for the rest of the the world, for the rest of the universe, so they could actually have traveled essentially 100 years into the future. So black holes actually represent a natural time machine. And so that's one of the reasons why I studied them, because I could understand how gravity, uh, or begin to understand how gravity was affected by time. But my work goes beyond that. Once again, I, I knew that gravity could affect time by studying how, you know, as I said, effects like uh, how clocks here at the surface of the Earth are affected by gravity, but also the extreme case of how uh, clocks are affected by the gravity of black holes. So, so I knew that gravity is affected, uh, time is affected by gravity. That is actually demonstrated. And so that was one of the core things that I... I do. However, I wanted to go. I wanted to use that to go beyond that, and that's where my breakthrough came. What I realized was that something that happens in Einstein's theory, which doesn't happen in Newton's theory. In Newton's theory of gravity, the only thing that can create gravity is matter. That is to say, that the Earth creates gravity, and which keeps us anchored to the Earth. That the Sun creates gravity which keeps the Earth in orbit around it, and so on. But in Einstein's theory, not only can matter create gravity, but light, which does not have matter, light is not matter, light can also create gravity. And that's what's unique. So that was what my breakthrough was anchored on. Because, and as I said, you can actually begin to see the logic of it. If gravity can affect time and light, can create gravity, then light can affect time. And that was my breakthrough to realize that by using light and manipulating light in a certain way, I could actually literally manipulate time because of the gravity of light. And that was that was actually my breakthrough. What I realized was that by creating a particular, this pattern I was talking about and the type of light that I'm talking about is a special type of light. This is the light that's created by a laser. Lasers okay. create highly focused beams, okay? Uh, unlike of Go light yeah. that spreads out, laser beams are sharp and only in one particular direction. And by having an arrangement of lasers in a particular way, I could create essentially a circulating pattern of light, you know, and that circulating pattern of light could cause a twisting of space, remember that in Einstein's theory, two things are happening things are happening to space and time. The circulating life would actually create a twisting of space and a twisting of time. And what I was able to show mathematically was that this twisting of time could create closed time loops. Remember I said that's the code word, that business is right. that you know going back into the past, because if you think of normal time it's linear, going from the past to the present future, and all of us, even though we're not aware of that, we are all carried along this river and
1: There's there's a logical connection there that you, you, when you when you articulate it, it's like, why didn't everybody see that before? Because the dark hole, you know, black hole is the absence of light, and it's kind of so light. I mean, is there, you know, anyway, uh, I know the answer to this question because I've read your book, but I'm nevertheless going to ask it because our audience is going to want to know. Did you build the time machine?
3: No, you have to remember that there's, and, and this is important. The um, <laughs> one of the reasons is is money, but but that's but that's that's uh, one aspect of it. The thing is, is that in physics, unlike the other areas of science, and I mean biology, and chemistry, uh, physics has a precise division of labor between theoretical physics and experimental physics. I'm a theoretical physicist. What I do, what theoretical physicists do generally, is They use equations to try to understand how the world works, and predict how the world will work under certain circumstances. Experimental physicists actually use equipment to actually see if this is the way in which the world works. Einstein was not an experimental physicist. I'm going to have to hold you
1: there because, once again, we have a hard break coming back. But when we come back, I'm going to find out you must have a partner. And you must be working on actually building this. And we'll talk about the funding and other aspects. Okay. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your calls. If you have questions for Professor Mallett, do call in. You can do that by dialing 1-877-230-3062. And if you're out of the country, just dial your country code and the same number again, 877-230-3062. Stay tuned. We have saved the best for last.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about Mind Programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere.
1: Be sure to catch our show on 12radio.com, bbsradio.com, and btoradio.net.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. You can join in the conversation by calling 877-230-3062. And for our international callers, you can join us by dialing your country code and 425-644-5620. You can also participate by entering the chat room at eldontailor.com forward slash chat. You can email Eldon from anywhere on the world by sending an email to Eldon at eldentylor.com. Now, back to the show.
1: just joined us we're speaking with professor ronald mallet about his life and book time traveler you owe it to yourself to get that book i guarantee you you will not be disappointed we will take your phone calls in this half hour so if you have questions of our guest either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward Okay, Professor, we just played some of Time to Say Goodbye, which I could listen to for the rest of the, I mean, I had to cut that song off. Tell us the story.
3: Yes, that, that, it's funny. The first time I heard that, I heard it was completely in Italian, and I didn't know um, the words. And I hunted, it took me years to hunt it down. And when I found out, and it moved me deeply, and I didn't know why, almost to tears, And uh, when I found out that the the song was called Time to Say Goodbye, uh, it was like, it it just spoke to me. thing is, is that what's important is the fact that we all have to realize that this journey uh, through time that we're going to is eventually going to end. And so it's so important for us to live as fully as we possibly can during that journey so that when we reach the end of that journey, and we do have to say goodbye. That we're ready, and that—that uh, that to me is why that's really, you know, so important. And uh, that's as I said, uh, I, it still moves me, you know, deeply every time I, I hear it. And I, I need to mention that I am a believer. So I believe that when I say the end, I mean the, the end of this journey as we understand it. Uh, what comes after that, uh, we if we. We don't know because uh, no one has come back directly to tell us. But uh, So I do think there is something beyond this journey. But I do believe that uh, we need to be prepared for this journey as we understand it.
1: I so agree with you uh, both about, uh, you know, we need to prepare to die. That's part of living consciously. And to that end, we need, I mean, we don't need, I, I hate that word, I guess, we could choose to enjoy every moment. Uh, and take full advantage of it, as you say, live live our lives. On the other hand, I am absolutely convinced from my own personal experience that we'll step through a doorway and you'll you will uh, you'll no doubt meet your dad and he'll no doubt give you the biggest hug of your lifetime, my friend. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Now, this half hour is our fun questions. We've got got enough of the science, and we'll, we'll still be doing science, but... You know, when you see the fiction movies, Professor, people get hung up on the event horizon, and here they are, they're on the event horizon to the black hole, and they're zipping around doing their thing, but they're really not aging at all. And then, you know, somehow they slingshot free, and back they come, and like you say, you know, centuries have passed. Now... The problem I have with that, based on your definitions, how you have clarified everything, is, look, if my heart's going to slow down that much, I'm not going to be zipping around anywhere on that threshold.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, no, the thing that you have to realize is that that it's a matter of perspective. You actually do not know that your heart is slowing down. See, that, that's the thing. In Einstein's theory, there's actually always two observers. There's the observer who's like, for instance, in motion or in the gravitational field, and then there's the observer who's watching that person. So, for example, when I was talking about speed, in the special theory of relativity, speed affecting time and causing a slowing down of a person's heart, the person who's actually doing that, they don't notice it. For example, when you're in your car traveling at 65 miles an hour, you don't feel like you're traveling at 65 miles an hour. But if someone who's watching you sees you zipping past, if they could detect it, they would actually see that your heart rate has slowed down, you know, just ever so much. And the faster you move, the more it would slow down. But you would not feel anything different. In other words, for you on board, uh, a ship that was traveling close to the speed of light, for you it would appear as though uh, nothing strange was happening. But someone watching your spaceship would actually see, it would appear as though you were actually coming to a halt in, in your ship, that your heart rate is coming to a to a halt so that's very strange so getting close to the black hole for people who are outside they would see the person's heart rate getting slower but for the person who's near the black hole for them nothing strange is happening their heart rate is for them is appearing to beat at its normal rate so they would be able to do their activities and everything just as though they were not even near the black hole so that's so that's that's an important aspect
1: it seems really, really strange because when you say slow down, I mean the physiologist in me says, "Okay, look, I've got a, a heart rate uh, monitor, and and I'm suddenly stuck on this threshold, uh, the event horizon, and I'm standing still, and so what is my heart rate?
3: Oh yeah, uh, no, is no it but now you don't two I mean, beats a minute
1: or oh,
0: yeah.
3: what? No, the thing is, is that the heart rate monitor. If you had that, if, if the person is near the black hole, if they had that heart rate monitor, it would be Beating at seventy-two beats per, per second, you know, per minute, rather,
1: you know. So just everything very normal. All
3: everything right, would be totally normal for, for them. It would be, but but the people who are watching them, okay, they would actually see the heart rate monitor. That's the strange thing about relativity. People who are outside, who are not near the black hole, who are watching the person that's near the black hole, they would actually see the heart rate monitor slowing. You know, showing a slower pulse. The person, in other words, they would actually see the person's heart rate actually slowing down. But for the person who's actually near the black hole, nothing strange is happening for them at all.
1: You know, now the fun thing about physics is anybody that likes to read physics, and I happen to have a passion for that, and I mean, we've got physicists in our family, including a a new graduate from Cambridge University in cosmology, PhD. But. You know, the fun thing is you get to a point where it really is science fiction. So, you know, <laughs> we, we have this multiple universes, many universes argument, you know. So, and, and if I'm going to time travel, there are implications for the many universes. Oh, that's Do you want right. to flesh that out for us? Oh,
3: Yeah, sure. Well, the thing is is that when you're time traveling to the future, there's no paradoxes. I mean, there's no problem. But when you go to the past, there's a major paradox. In fact, it goes by the name of the grandfather paradox. And to put it into a nutshell, suppose that you went back into the past and somehow prevented your grandparents from meeting each other. Okay? Well, if they don't meet each other, uh, they don't have your parents. And if they don't have your parents, your parents don't have you because they don't exist. And if they don't have you, then how did, how did you go back to uh, cause all this mischief? And the thing is, is that that's called the grandfather paradox, where you do you go back into the past and do something that seems like it could potentially erase your own existence, and that's actually a very serious paradox that's associated with it. But that's only because of the fact that we're, when we've been talking about, we've only been talking about one of the major pillars of science, which is a modern science, which is relativity. The other major pillar is quantum mechanics. Okay, quantum mechanics is a whole different uh, beast. It really is. And the thing is, is that quantum mechanics, however, underlies everything associated with our modern technology. Our cell phones, our PCs, all of these things work because of quantum mechanics. So, and our the periodic table of elements, okay, it basically tells us how matter behaves. The thing is, is that quantum mechanics, however, that gives something else weird. It says that we cannot predict exactly what's going to happen next. We can only talk about the probability of what's going to happen next. And this leads to the, the weird consequence of the fact that uh, we, if we, for example, suppose today you were trying to make a decision between having a cheeseburger and a fish sandwich. Well, the okay. moment that you made the decision to have the fish sandwich, there would be a split of the universe. There would also be a universe in which you have chosen. Eldon has chosen the cheeseburger. So there are two separate Eldons. You and this that's chosen the cheeseburger, and one is chosen in a fish sandwich, and two separate universes mind you. The thing is is that they are real, and this universe is splitting off is separate, and this is for every single decision that every single one of us is making, and it doesn't have to be human beings making it. If an electron can take a path to go one way or the other, the universe splits, and there are now two separate universes in which the electron has taken one path, and in the other universe it's taken the other path. This is the parallel universe notion, that this was developed, incidentally, back in the 50s by a physicist at Princeton uh, named right. uh, Hugh Everett the third. Now, the thing is, is that this notion of parallel universes has been applied to time travel, it was applied by an Oxford uh, professor, David Deutsch. And what he found was this, that when you work out the mathematics, when you go back into the past, at the moment that you arrive in the past, there's a split of the universe you arrive in a separate parallel universe in which you can prevent your grandparents from meeting each other now you were just locked into the strange universe in which you were never born in that universe but you're there the thing is, is that remember i said there was a split the other universe you you don't arrive in that one and in that one your grandparents meet each other have your parents and have you just
1: that's really interesting so now i've arrived in the past and i've messed with it so i've changed that line but now i want to return to my own is, is that possible
3: you can't go home again
1: you can't the paraphrase go
3: home a famous, uh, right you can't go home again you cannot get back every time you would try you would just be arriving in another parallel universe and and so uh... branch off no matter how many times always be a different path you can never get back to the universe that you came and even if you try to go to a future it would be arriving in the future of the parallel universe that you were in so once okay. you make that decision to go back you're locked into that new universe
1: <laughs> so all these fiction movies we see you know the the time travel the time cops that go back and catch you know the bad guys before the bad guys do their thing um that would be a one-way trip if it ever happened
3: according to parallel universe theory. Now, here's the weird thing, okay? Physics is basically experimental science. The thing is is that when we go back into the past, it could happen that there's other two other alternatives. One, that we really do go back to the past, but when we go back to the past, we can't change things
4: in a way that will
3: change things in the future. In other words, that essentially reality will adjust itself so that it will play out in the way that we know, even though you think that you've gone back and changed things, so it will actually happen. The other is is that we really do alter the past in an essential way, and that what we think of as our solid reality is really a reality that, that uh, we only remember, that a time traveler, however, would know that it was... Uh, they, would, they would be actually schizophrenic, because they would have more than one reality going on in their head. But for all of us... Uh, there was, this would be just the way it's always been. The thing is, is that we don't really know how this will play out until actually when we do the experiment. And you were asking earlier about this experimental side of it. And as I was mentioning, you know, Einstein came up with the equation equals mc squared. He was a theoretical physicist. He did not uh, build nuclear reactors. He did not build the atomic bomb. That was experimental physicists and engineers. And it's the same thing with my work. I've developed a basic equation that show that you can to manipulate time to go back into the past. However, the experimental physicist, and I do have an experimental partner, his name is Chandler Chowdhury, he's an expert in lasers, not in relativity, but he's interested in showing this, uh, show, showing my work, essentially, uh, see, like the equivalent of, of showing you get a reactor based on i equals mc squared. The problem is, is that real science costs money. Remember I was talking about the Large Hadron Collider, I was concerned. Right.
1: Applying for grants, I take it, in order to... The information on that. I mean, you you know, there is a lot of romance to this whole notion of time travel, you know. And I th- I would think that the popular grassroots folks, you know, would could maybe you know get excited about that. I could get excited about that, you know. Uh, give us the name of uh, of uh, you know the the website or where we have to go if if listeners out there wanted to make a contribution towards your research.
3: Right, and, and thank you. The other thing is, is that the other thing is, is that these contributions are all tax deductible, legitimate tax deductible. Um,
0: I love that.
3: Yeah. So, and uh, what they have to do is they would go to the University of Connecticut uh, website, the physics department. It's www. and that's u c o n n. dot edu. So www.physics.uconn. When they go there, Professor. right now so that's a long way from, from where we you know need to
1: go okay. but revender uh, can excuse me revender can you put that link can you go there track it down and put that link on our page so all of our listeners can just click the link and not have to go through this you know page after page after page so it was uh you connecticut dot edu, then find uh, professor mallet and follow the links can you do that ravinder
2: yeah i've got most of that um up already i mean i had the, the, have you the, the main the link the i will foundation. follow it through i will follow it through and get
1: the yeah, foundation that well. and put that up so yeah. we'll put that link on our page do you while i'm on the subject uh professor do you have a website uh or a url that you uh, can be reached at if our listening audience has questions would like to uh, oh yeah my yes,
3: uh Right, it's just it's uh, my email address essentially, and that's r l m a l l e t t at a o l So essentially, it's my name r l m a l l e t t at a o l And as I said, I think that that and as you mentioned, in my book is uh, a time traveler uh, science. Personal Mission to Make Time Travel a Reality, that it's both a memoir and popular science book. I wrote it so that people would find the story interesting, but also it's a popular science book to tell about the other about the real possibility of time travel. And in that, I also talk about other what other people are doing as well. So the book uh, covers more than just simply my work, but it also talks about my journey. And it is available on Amazon.com, a paperback.
1: It's a great book. Again, I'm going to come back and say, you know, everybody in my family has read the book, and uh, we all loved it, and uh, I highly suggest it. All right, let's get back to some fun questions now. I know you like to watch science fiction. Oh, yeah. So, uh, all right. <laughs> what is the best science fiction portrayal you've seen of time travel?
3: Well, one of the most accurate has been uh, the old, original Planet of the Apes with uh, Charlton Heston. Really, uh, the thing is, is that what they show is this rocket, and it, that it actually has gone into the future because it's been traveling so fast, and that actually is a very accurate portrayal. And in fact, that as the, the plot in the movie is, is, that the people in it they don't realize that they've traveled into the Earth's future, and of course, that's the whole basis of of the story. Uh, they think that they've landed on some other planet, but uh, the thing is, is that so that's been actually one of the most accurate one of the uh, best science fiction movies though I think it's the 1960 version of the time machine uh, with Rod Taylor plays the the, uh, the time traveler in that and what's nice about that is at the beginning of it you don't see this in science fiction movies at all because they want to get right to the action they actually spent time talking about uh, time as the fourth dimension and giving that as an example they actually uh, that's Beautifully done. It's really beautifully done, and people haven't seen it. I think it's going to be coming out in Blu-ray now soon. But that's actually one of the the other ones. Uh, and you've mentioned another one that, uh, which I actually enjoy, which has, doesn't get as much press as it should. Time Cops it talks about, really? you know, how we uh, should, uh, what what are the ethical problems involved in possibility of time travel to the past and that that actually addresses that in some way and I, and I like it for that, that particular reason but also if people go to my website they, they'll actually see a list an annotated list of uh, what I consider to be uh, at least some of my
1: best favorite science fiction films of time travel okay cool we'll have to check that out we opened this show uh with the concern about ethical and moral issues having to do with technology and how technology often outraces that, uh, you know, our ability, let's say, to respond. We have about 30 seconds. Professor, what do you think is important, most important, about time travel and our ethical concerns? Well,
3: I think it's important for people to realize that, that, that time travel is a real possibility and that we are going to have to to Concern ourselves as citizens as to how it's going to be utilized. I think that that's really going to be important. I think time travel, as far as people are concerned, is way off in the future. But time travel, as far as sending information back into the past, I think is not going to be that far off. I I definitely think it'll be part of this this particular century. But we're going to have to be wise in how we decide to use it.
1: Okay, on that, I'm afraid we're out of time. Professor Mallet. it has been a joy, a pleasure. I wish we had a lot more time. I have many, many more questions, but I want to thank you and thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. Till then, remember, believing in yourself always matters.
0: Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com.
4: If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.